out of Handel's Messiah. And if you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah, uh, which is one of my favorite pieces of music, I actually have it in my car most of the time when I'm driving around. And um, uh, so I'm going to restrain myself for your benefit and not burst out into song, but it really really is incredible uh, how it uh, ties in with that. So verse 17 it says, ye, ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed." Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? And then please verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Again, God will bless that reading from his precious word to us this evening. So um, we mentioned uh, at the end of last night's message that one of the things that the, the people of, of Judah was saying and, and the people of Israel was saying is, where is the God of judgment? And, and it was the mentality was that, that basically we can do what we want, we can get away with it, we're not concerned, uh, God is not going to judge, he's not that kind of God, that kind of thing. Where's the God of judgment? And so Malachi in chapter 3 is going to answer that. And so he begins by telling us that, first of all, before the God of judgment comes, he will send his messenger before him. 
And so notice he says, Behold, I will send my messenger. Remember we, we said this is the third messenger so far in the book. Uh, Malachi is the messenger of the Lord. And then the sons of Levi in chapter 2, if you remember, and, and verse 8 were to be God's messengers. And now we have John the baptizer who is going to be God's messenger. I'll send my messenger. He shall prepare, prepare the way before me. And so we'll just stop there. Think about this messenger. Because remember, where's the God of judgment? Do you remember John's message? How did he begin his preaching? What was his opening words? His opening salvo was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a message of repentance. It was a message that was, in a sense, bringing God's judgment on the state of the nation and saying, you are in dire need of repentance. And uh, uh, I, I just love uh, John's ministry. I mean, uh, imagine uh, you're kind of opening salvos. You're a bunch of snakes. Imagine if I started the ministry on Tuesday night saying, well, I've heard a lot about you guys. You're a right bunch of snakes. I mean, uh, I might not have got a second night or a third night, right? But that's, that was his opening. You guys are a brood of vipers, he says. And, and he said, uh, I've come to lay the axe to the root. <laughs> and it was, he's going to be doing some chopping down, cutting people to size in his ministry, right? Where's the God of judgment? Well, his messengers come and his message is one. You need to repent. There's judgment in that message, right? In your present state, you're in great danger. You need repentance. And then he says, and again, thinking of John's message, it affected everybody, bringing conviction of sin to the hearts of the people from Herod on his throne to the harlot on the street. Like, I mean, his message really was powerful. And it was a message, a searching message, and a message of judgment and a need of repentance. But then it says, And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. And so, because the Jews delighted in the idea that Messiah was coming, and they, they lived in expectation of the coming of Messiah, but when Messiah came, the first public act of the Lord Jesus, after his baptism by John, was to go to the temple and remember, he made a whip out of cords. He turns the money changers' tables over, drives out the, the money changers from the temple, and he cleanses the temple. The Lord whom, where's the God of judgment? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear at his temple. And what is he coming with? A message of judgment. What was his opening message to the nation? Repent, just like John's. The kingdom is at hand, right? So they're looking for this, this David-like warrior that will overthrow the Romans, right? And, and bring deliverance from Roman bondage. And he's coming to deliver them from the bondage of sin and speak to their hearts about their need of repentance. See, they delighted in the idea of the Messiah, but not in the, the right idea of Messiah. The messenger of the covenant is going to come. He sure is. Uh, and um, uh, you might delight in him, but when he comes, he's coming to judge. 
uh, he, he's coming to, to drive out the, the, the people who had made his father's house into a den of thieves rather than what it was intended to be, a house of prayer for all the nations. And so the Lord Jesus indeed did come uh, in, in, as that messenger of the covenant. Of course, we, we, we ask yourself the question, well, what, what covenant? Um, there's a sense, remember we said that word messenger, um, it, it also is the idea of angel, the angel of the covenant. So it could be a reference to the fact that all the way through the Old Testament, you've got these references to the angel of the Lord that was with them, right? Which was divine, and, and it, it, maybe that's the idea. Or could it be that the Messiah, the one who you seek, is a messenger of a covenant, but it's the new covenant that he is bringing? And of course, the Lord Jesus uh, it really came to institute a new covenant. Remember at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. Remember that? And, and this new covenant was initially meant to be for the house of Israel and the house of Judah, wasn't it? And, and, and some of the aspects of that covenant included that your sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. And of course, uh, we think to ourselves, how do we ever get in on it? Because when we take the cup, Remember, it still says, this is the new covenant in my blood, and yet I'm not an Israeli or, or, or a Jew of any kind, as far as I know. And even when we did our genealogy, there's not a hint there, right? So how do I get in on that? Because we believed in Israel's Messiah. And we got in at least on that spiritual blessing that, that our sins, now isn't that interesting, our sins and iniquities, he says, I will remember them no more. But the problem is, I remember them. And the, the accuser of the brethren remembers them and reminds me of them often. You ever had him do that to you? You're up there preaching, my cat, well, I know stuff about you. And he's right, right? But in the amazing thing, the God who knows everything says, I choose to remember your sins and iniquities no more. I will never bring them back before you again. Aren't you glad you're a New Testament believer? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that exciting? I mean, I know we're not Pentecostal, but give me an amen there. Aren't you glad? Isn't that ex I just think it's so thrilling to think about those things. And so here he is, the messenger of the covenant, suddenly appearing and uh, Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But then it says this, Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And, and so this, this idea of, of his coming, and especially coming to the temple, coming to the nation of Israel, there's a couple of thoughts that's in view here. A refiner's fire is to remove the dross. So that refining process is to refine silver or gold so all the dross is removed. And, and you know, you've heard this illustration before that, that how do they know when all the dross is gone? It's when the person who's the refiner can see his image in the liquid, okay? And, and, and in one sense, it, that's true of us that one of the things God is doing in our lives is refining us and getting rid of all the dross. 
And the dross is everything about you and I that doesn't look like the Lord Jesus so that when we eventually look in the mirror, we see him. And that's a beautiful process, right? And so he's going to remove the dross. And then he's um, like a fuller's soap and uh, a launderer, fuller, whatever you want to call it. When we, I was in India, the, in Mumbai, there's, there's this amazing place where they wash clothing. And uh, we were up on a hillside looking down on it. And uh, the sun was shining and, and it's all this white clothes. And it just looks absolutely brilliant. In fact, Lever Brothers, Procter & Gamble have sent their, their kind of agents there to try and find out how these people get these clothes so white. And the answer is simple. It's called elbow grease. You know, I mean, just a lot of hard work and scrubbing, but, but they're brilliantly white clothing. And it really stood out when we stood up on this hill looking down, uh, and it gave me an idea of what they're saying here. You see, what, what the launderer's soap is designed to do is get all the dirt out. Okay? So that what's left is brilliant whiteness. And what the Lord is going to do for the nation of Israel in a coming day, what he's also seeking to do in our lives, get rid of all the dross so we look like Jesus and get all the dirt out so that we're clean and white and holy like he meant us to be. And, uh, and so uh, that's what he's going to do. That's his process, that, re- that cleaning the dirt out, removing the dross. Uh, he shall sit uh, as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And of course, we recognize that from the book of Malachi, this time they were not, their offerings were profane, they were corrupt, they were offering the lame, the damaged, and, and, and their hands were dirty, and they were just awful priests. But there's a coming day on the earth when the, the sons of Levi will get a chance to get it right. And uh, I know it's kind of shocking to some, and some people call this the, the Achilles heel of dispensationalism, that we believe that in the millennial kingdom, there will be a temple and there will be sacrifices. And you can't read Ezekiel 40 through 48 and not say that that's going to happen. And the temple described there doesn't fit on Temple Mount. So it, it can't be any other temple because it actually, the dimensions of it are bigger than the Mount uh, right now. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require geographical changes. When Jesus puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, those changes will begin, right? Because actually, even the tribulation period, every island is going to move out of its way. There's going to be a lot of geographical changes in the millennial kingdom, and one of them is going to be in the land of Israel. What's going to happen, actually, is, is that with the earthquakes and all the various aspects, that Israel actually is going to be elevated, the land of Israel is going to be elevated And it's going to be a city set on a hill, in a sense. And the temple is going to be built, Ezekiel's temple, and they'll be offering sacrifices. And so, of course, the natural question is, well, how does that fit with the book of Hebrews? Okay. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices 
the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Okay? So even the millennial sacrifices will be just as ineffective taking away sin as the Old Testament one. The only thing that takes away sin is the blood of Jesus. God's Son cleanses us from all sin, right? It's the work of Calvary. The Old Testament sacrifices anticipated the coming of Christ, looked forward to it. The millennial sacrifices will be, like our Lord's Supper, will be looking back. So why do they need to do the sacrifices? Why can't they just celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, that's a good question. Glad you asked. The answer is simple. In the millennial kingdom, death will be such a rarity that a child, it says, will die a hundred years old. So death is, is going to be a rare event. So when you talk to people about the death of Christ... And they're not going to be watching TV with 46 murders before 11 o'clock in the morning, right? Like, people will have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean, the death of Christ? But the sacrificial system will illustrate the horror of death. And it will be helpful for people to be able to properly remember what Jesus did as the lamb that was slain, right? So, so it, it is going to happen, and uh, there's no question about it. And the sons of Levi, and isn't this the, the greatness of God, that he's a God of new beginnings, that ultimately the tribe of Levi really kind of made a mess in the end, right? We just read about it yesterday. We were talking about, the, oh, ye priests, this message is to you, but they get to do it right in a coming day. And the descendants of Zadok, who were loyal to David in the day of Absalom's rebellion, will be, the, will be those that will be offering the, the sacrifices, and they'll get to do it right. And Israel will get to do it right, and they'll succeed, and isn't that so gracious of God that he lets them get it right in the end? I told you there's going to be a happy ending. You, you were wondering after the last two nights, but this is a happy ending. They, they do get to do it right. And they will offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And it says it will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years, just like when they first came out uh, and first erected the tabernacle and, and all like that. It's going to be wonderful. I will come near to you, verse 5, into judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, widow, fatherless, that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember we said that one of the great themes of Malachi is what happens when the people of God lose the fear of God. And, and there's a description of the kind of things that, the people of God get up to when they lose the fear of God. And he's going to come and deal with that and uh, put things right and justice will be done and, and he will be a witness against them. And it's interesting, we saw that he was a witness of the marriage vows in the previous chapter. He was a witness when that took place. And he's going to be a witness against those that have broken them, that have done these things, right, that are mentioned here. I'll be a swift witness against them. And so the Lord is certainly coming. Where is the God of judgment? Well, he's coming. 
That's the answer of this section. He is coming. And uh, verse 6, he tells us something about himself. And isn't it a wonderful thing? I am the Lord, he says in verse 6, I change not. Aren't you thankful for that? Isn't that wonderful? By the way, what that means is God will never improve. I know that sounds almost heretical to say that, but he doesn't need to. When you're perfect, you can improve, right? How can you improve on absolute perfection? So he's not going to get any better because he's perfect. Our perception of him will grow and we'll realize more and more how amazing he is. But he himself is never going to change in terms of, because change means you either get better or worse, right? He's not going to get better and he's never going to get any worse either because he's perfect. Aren't you thankful for that? An unchanging God. He's not moody. There's not a bad day for you to approach him because he might be having one of those days. Aren't you glad about that, about God, that he doesn't have those kind of days? We, we sometimes do. He doesn't have those days. I am the Lord. I change not. And he, he doesn't change his mind or his promises either. He says, therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. We could give a New Testament application to that. The gifts and callings of God, Romans 11, are without repentance. In other words, when God chose Abraham and made promises to Abraham about a land and about a seed and all these things, he's never changed his mind. Right? And he will fulfill those promises. And, And it's so important for us to realize that God will keep his promises. That's why Jacob is still existing today for all the way they've provoked the Lord. They're still here because he has not relinquished his promises to them. Aren't you thankful for that? It's, it's wonderful. And by the way, uh, when, when, when I feel particularly passionate about the fact that God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be fulfilled in space-time history. because And here's the reason why. If God doesn't keep his promises to them, what makes us think he would keep them to us? You see, he made some promises to us too. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, right? Romans 8, it's all about these great promises to us. And then he goes into Romans 9, and the point is that somebody could be saying, well, it's okay, you're making all these promises, but remember Israel, look what happened to them. You see, and Romans 9 through 11 is to say, yeah, I know what happened to them, but I have, I will fulfill every promise concerning them. I haven't changed my mind concerning them. And, and it's a guarantee that he's not going to change his mind concerning us either. Even from the days, verse 7, of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I just love these promises that God makes. This is to a backsliding people, as we've seen throughout this prophecy, who are far from God, and yet God still in grace through Malachi says to them, listen, if you return to me, I'll return to you. 
New Testament equivalent, James 4, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that's, I don't know where you're at, but maybe there's somebody in this room and you're you're backslidden and you know you are, right? You're you're not enjoying the intimacy with the Lord you once did. You've drifted. And we're all, you know, when we drift, whoever we are, whenever we drift, we always drift away from the Lord. We never drift towards him. Just the way the way way it is, right? We drift away. But he, he, he promises you tonight, wherever you're at, if you draw near to him, he said, I'll be right there. I'll draw near to you. You can go to the bank with that. That's a promise. And that's the grace of our God, isn't it? And he says that to these people, we've been listening to the things that he said to them. And even at this stage in his prophecy, he says, return to me and I will return to you. What a wonderful promise. But notice the response. But ye said, wherein shall we return? In other words, we don't need to return. We're not backslidden, really. Remember how they're always fighting back and always arguing? And, and, and they're, not, they're not willing to just get honest with God about where they're really at. And so they're, they're basically um, just in denial. That's where they're at. And, and they they're just want to just stay where they're at in terms of we, we don't need to return back. Um, they're, they're self-righteous and they don't recognize their true state and they're arguing with God. And so God gives them an answer and says, okay, I'm going to show you at least one area. We've already looked at the offerings that they were bringing to the temple, the blind and the lame and all this kind of stuff. But then he says, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. So they were robbing God by withholding their tithes and offerings. Now, you can only rob somebody of that which is rightfully theirs. Okay? And so the implication is that by right, the tenth belonged to God. Right? It, it, it was his. So you, he's saying to them, uh, you're robbing me. Now, maybe they, we know they were going through some hard times. And so they were thinking, well, you know, he, you know, he doesn't mind. Anything will do for him. So we'll cut back. We'll give him 8%. Maybe we'll give him 7 right? And he says, you're robbing me. You're not, you're not giving me what's, what's rightfully mine. Uh, that the law had clearly uh, said they, they were under obligation. This is how the, the priests were supposed to be supported. This is how the poor were supposed to be cared for. And, and you are robbing me. Now, of course, under grace, we recognize we're not under law. But we should give to the Lord as he has prospered us, Right? How do you begin to calculate how much God has prospered you? Right? I mean, where, how do you, where do you begin with that? Like, how do you compute all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? I mean, and put it in dollars and cents. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how you can do that, right? But I, I would say at the very least, our giving under grace ought to be more than under law, not less. Do you think? 
Because we've received so much from him, from his gracious hand. And so he says, well, the man robbed God. You've robbed me. But you said, where have we robbed you? Tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And so they were suffering as a result of their clear disobedience to the revealed will of God in the word of God, and they were, they were suffering. They were under a curse. He says, bring you all the tithes, verse 10, into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now wherewith, uh, herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So God actually puts them to a, a challenge. And he says, try me. Okay? You, try, you bring what you should bring and, and see how I'll bless you. Okay? Now, we've got to be careful. You know what? Today, we've got all these TV evangelists and they're saying, send me $1,000 and, and you'll be a millionaire before the weekend. You know, that kind of stuff. Right? We've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. But, but I, I think there's a principle, and the simple principle is this. Not through coercion by any means, but, but just a simple principle that you will never outgive God. John Bunyan, who was quite the uh, literary guy, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember that book. Uh, but he, he had this little ditty. And it went like this. There was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Isn't that great? There was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. God says, prove me. Put me to the test. See how it works. I, I've done this. It's kind of interesting. I was in a meeting one night. I had a $100 bill in my back pocket. And there was a brother there that I knew who was in need. But I, I knew if I gave him this $100... And I couldn't break it. It's just it's $100 bill. It's in my pocket. I either give it or I don't give it. So I said, Lord, I feel burdened about this brother. I'm going to give it to him. But you know, if anything happens on the way home, I don't have a nickel. So I gave him the money. Before I left the building, somebody else came up and shook my hand. It was a $100 bill. Just redistribution of wealth. Right, but it was this. That's happened more than once. I can tell you many times when when we've been burdened about something given, and the Lord has said, "We're just testing you. Here you are. It's wonderful, right? And and I can't imagine missing out on the blessing of seeing the Lord work in these amazing ways. And so, just this general principle that he he wants to bring before them that put me to the test. And see if I won't come through for you. And of course, it's got to be given to the Lord. And when we give, we give it to him. Um, but he says, if, if they would do this, I'll open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke, rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Maybe the curse they were experiencing was a curse on the land because they weren't bringing their tithes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And the nation shall call you blessed. Others will see and witness what I am doing to you. Uh, in the way that I am uh, answering this challenge 
for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. And so God basically puts them to the test. And, and it is good to, to periodically ask ourselves, are we being faithful? Of course, what the New Testament says is the first thing you give to the Lord is yourself, right? They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. You've got to start right there. Uh, I love what Rex Trogdon once told this great story of when he worked amongst the, uh, the, in the Congo, amongst the pygmies, pygmy people, and they did not have money. So they had a basket at the front of the, the, the meeting place, and people would bring their veggies or whatever, and they would just to give to the Lord, they'd put their produce in the basket. And there was a guy, he was so poor, he didn't have anything to bring, so he just walked up and stood in the basket. Now, that's a great idea, isn't it? In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, all I can give you is me. Now, if you stand in the basket, he's got your wallet as well, right? He's got everything. It begins giving yourself to the Lord. And once he's got you, he has everything you have. And so we need to make sure we're responding correctly to the Lord and giving to him. And so it says, uh, verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, says the Lord, yet you you say, What have we spoken so much against thee? You have said... It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So several factors going on here. First of all, they're saying it, it doesn't pay to serve God. And, and you could see that in their attitude. They're clearly not happy campers spiritually, right? It, it, they're, 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 they're going through the motions. It's wearisome to them. The whole thing is wearisome to them. And, and, and so they say it, it doesn't pay to serve God. And, you know, it's easy sometimes to see that because we look at the, uh, and the psalmist, right? Psalm 73, remember that story? How, how come the wicked prosper? And sometimes it seems like rogues and scoundrels do brilliantly. And since I became a Christian, I've had nothing but sickness, and I've had this, and I've had... And it's been tough, right? But you know what the psalmist found in Psalm 73? God took... When he went into the sanctuary of God, God pulled, as it were, the veil back, and he showed him their end the end of the wicked. You see, the full story is not going to be told until eternity. We've got to remember that. And and so the wicked might live a charmed life now, but one second after they're dead, the charm's over. They are in eternity weeping, gnashing of teeth in, in a place of incredible torment and all that glitz and all that glamour is not going to mean a thing. And for the child of God, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is just a little bit better. No, no. Far better, isn't it? So we, we, we can't do our accounting just yet. But having said all that, there's, we've got to be careful how we say this. In one sense, there is a certain prosperity comes with believing the gospel. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, don't get nervous. 
I'm not doing that. But, but before I was saved, I was a drunk. I didn't have any money. Every penny I had went to the brewery. My credit card was maxed, so-called having a good time. When I got saved for the first time in my life, I actually had money in my back pocket. Because sin is expensive. And not only is it expensive, it doesn't satisfy. I remember sitting at work. I'd spent all my money over the weekend. Couldn't even remember where I had been. And I'm sat at my desk thinking to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. And when I got saved, I realized I now have life, real life. I don't need Friday night and going out on the town to get high. I'm high all the time. I'm in heavenly places. How high can you get? Right? Enjoying all the blessings of intimacy with my Savior. You can't put a price on that. What a blessed life. Right? Joy unspeakable, full of glory. This is, this is the abundant life the Savior spoke of. And it doesn't cost, cost him everything. But, but it was a free gift that I received. I mean, it's amazing, right? So we've we got to just be careful how we analyze it. They said it's a waste of time serving God. What profit is there that we've kept his ordinance, that we've walked mournfully? They obviously were joyless individuals. It was like every time they went to the house of God, instead of joy... It's like they're going to a funeral. We've walked mournfully, you know. Like they're like just, you know. Some people are like that, right? They're just like they're just like funeral people. That's the way they were. And they called the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness, verse fifteen, are set up or elevated. Yea, they tempt God or even delivered. And so they're, they're just like the psalmist in Psalm seventy-three. The bad guys seem to be really having the good time, and we're the ones that are really having a bad time. And they just weren't seeing things correctly. And so he says, verse sixteen, then they that feared the Lord. Now I want to just say this. I've kind of alluded to it, but I need to say it again, that who we're talking about here in the book of Malachi are are the, the remnant that returned after the Babylonian captivity. And they were, they were the spiritual ones in the sense that when the command was given, that they could return, anybody could have gone back. But most people had no interest in going back to the land. And there was reasons, because the land was like a war zone. It'd be like, hey, there's free land for sale in Syria. You know, in Syria. Who wants to go? You want to move, leave Florida and go to Syria right now? I mean, imagine the war's over, but you've seen pictures of it, right? Anybody want to go there? Right? So, so they're going to a war zone. So you can understand why some wouldn't want to come. But the ones that went back, went back because they believed that that was God's land that had been given to them. And they believed that Jerusalem was the center of everything. And so the ones that went back were the real deal people. But now, as we've seen, time's gone by 
and they've become cynical. They're going through the motions. The, 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 the faithful remnant have become disenchanted. So now we find that even within that remnant, there's a remnant. Those that feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke often to one another. The Lord hearkened and heard it. Book of Remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And it, it is an interesting thing that in Scripture, there, there's always this idea of a remnant. And uh, <clears throat> now when we think of a remnant, we might think of uh, something kind of left over, not even valuable. Like, uh, you know, we don't do carpets anymore, but but I remember when we first got married, we didn't have a lot of money. That's because of my previous uh, life as a drunkard. And we, were tr- we got this house and we were trying to put a carpet down. So we went to a shop and got a remnant, right? It was the, it was the leftover, okay? That's all we could afford. Nothing fitted, just a remnant put on the floor. And, and so it, it, we don't think of it in necessarily uh, a, a, a good sense, but certainly in the way I'm using it, it it's a good thing. It, 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 it's the idea of... Um, something that is uh, in, in the, the, the masses corrupt, but there's a small faithful group within the corrupt mass. It implies that the, the whole has gone bad, but here's something that stayed faithful to God. And so this, this remnant, but just let's quickly run through. We're going to do this very quick because we want to get into chapter 4 tonight. But um, a brief history of the remnant in scripture look back at genesis 4 genesis 4 in the days of cain when everybody it seems vast majority have gone to try and find happiness without god in the world in cain's civilization verse 25 of genesis 4 says adam knew his wife again she bare a son called his name Seth, for God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And Seth, to him also were born, was born a son. He called his name Enos. Then it says this, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So in the mass of the Cainite civilization, there's a remnant that begin to call on the name of the Lord. Right? Very positive. Uh, for a bit further on, Genesis 5, uh, this again, the, the generation before the flood, pretty bleak uh, generation. But Genesis 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so, again, a remnant. Here's a, a man in a day where vast majority uh, are living wickedly, and yet here's one who walks with God in the midst of all that. Of course, Genesis 6 uh, 5 through 11, we've got Noah, Numbers 14, we, I, I'm not going to look at all the references, 6 through 10, Joshua and Caleb, they were a remnant, isn't that amazing? Uh, you think about Joshua and Caleb, a whole generation that came out of Egypt, this is kind of a similar situation, isn't it? whole generation came out of Egypt, but there were only two that believed the promises of God. And all they did for 40 years is wait for the dead wood to die. 
and attended funerals for 40 years of people who didn't really believe God. Can you imagine how frustrating that was? To just attend funerals and go around in circles for 40 years. But then after that, what did they do? We're in. We're going in the land. 85 years of age. Just read it the other day. Caleb, give me this mountain. Isn't that just an inspiring, right? There's a remnant. And, and we, we, we see even at the time when the Savior was born, how many were really looking expectantly. Anna, Simeon, Zechariah, Elizabeth. I mean, it's a remnant, right? All the way through. And so we just need to recognize that. And even in church history, there's always been a remnant. The Dark Ages, there was a remnant. There were true believers even in the Dark Ages. And so... We, we just recognize that there's always been... And so we might ask the question, as we recognize the corruption even of evangelicalism in North America today, it would be good to ask us, am I part of God's remnant? What, is it, what does it look like? Well, it says, they that feared the Lord. Remember we said, what happens when the people of God lose the fear of God? We said, that looks like us for the most part. But those that feared the Lord, what they do, they, well, they met together with like-minded ones that feared the Lord, and they spoke often one to another. And I suspect it wasn't about uh, the latest TV soap operas. Those that feared the Lord, when they came together, they spoke about the things of the Lord together. They kept themselves encouraged in the things of the Lord together. They enjoyed talking about Him and about His name and His character. And so they spoke often once another, and, and the Lord hearkened. Don't you just love that? The Lord listened in. He said, I like this conversation. Especially when they're talking about His Son. They're just kind of, lean, He's leaning over. You get this picture they're talking about my boy. You see? Can you, I mean, forgive me if that sounds irreverent, but you know how it is. Uh, I, I used to love it. I'd hear people talk about my son James, and I'd say, that's my boy. You know, I like that because I like him. He's my boy. I really do, and I like it when people like him. I don't like it when people don't like him, right? And so here's a lot. he's listening in. They fear my name. Uh, they, 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 they fear the Lord. They spoke to one another about these things. The Lord listened to it. He heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. This would really stand out in their minds because if you remember the great story of the book of Esther, when somebody did something good for the king, it was put in the record book, wasn't it? Do you remember that? Remember that night that the king couldn't sleep? And show me the books. And so he reads about what Mordecai had done out of loyalty to the king. What should we do for a guy like that, right? And, and, and so this, is, this, this would resonate with them. The remnant, God is listening, and he is keeping a record in his book. I sometimes think when we're sincerely remembering him, it goes in his book of remembrance. These people love my son, in a world that hates him, I actually really appreciate this. I'm going to write it down in my book. Doesn't that make a big difference when you start thinking about it? Well, this is what they're doing. This is what the Lord is doing here. 
The Lord heard it. Book of Remembrance was written before him. Them that feared the Lord, those that thought, meditated, set a value, I suppose you could say, upon his name, uh, that esteemed his name. And he says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my jewels. In other words, these are my crown jewels. These are my these are my gems, right? I just think these are gems. What a wonderful uh, uh, affirmation from God uh, towards these people. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. You see, they can they they right at this point they weren't good at judging between the righteous and the wicked. In their minds, the wicked were the ones who were prospering, the righteous were the ones who were... But he said in that day, there'll be no question about that. The righteous, you'll see them. They're my crown jewels. Uh, When we shall appear, people are going to be in amazement when they see us. The world's going to be in amazement when they see us. When When we're manifested as the sons of God, with the Son of God, they're going to look and say, I, I used to work with that guy. Look at him now. Right? There'll be no question about who the good guys and who the bad guys are. When he comes, it'll all be perfectly clear. Isn't that going to be exciting? No confusion then. And so we get to chapter 4. And we got about seven minutes. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Remember John the Baptist's imagery about the chaff being burnt, a baptism of fire, right? The chaff's going to be burned up, going to be burned as an oven. The proud, the proud that they were just talking about, that they thought were doing rather well, um, they're going to be burned up. Yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. They might have kind of amazing dynasties now. And it is amazing how there's kind of the Hollywood dynasties and all this kind. But all that stuff's going to be cut down in that day. Uh, It won't be impressive anymore. The Lord of hosts is going to leave neither root nor branch. But to you that fear my name, verse 2, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. You shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. Now just think about, um, the Lord Jesus, when he comes to the earth uh, at his second advent, is coming to Israel as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. So you, you got this interesting thing. Really, the last book of the Old Testament anticipates Messiah's coming to Israel as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. But I want you to look uh, to the book of Revelation for a moment because I want to do a little bit of contrasting. And notice in Revelation 22 and verse 16. Revelation 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. 
Okay? The sun of righteousness, the bright and morning star. Okay? To the church, he is the bright and morning star. To Israel, he's the son of righteousness. Now, what, is, what does all that mean? Well, it's interesting that the bright and morning star is, is when, when the night is at its darkest, just before dawn, you see the day star. It, it tells you the day is coming. Okay, it's, it's, it's at the very darkest point. The day star is seen. It's actually, some say Jupiter is what you can actually see. Okay? And then, after that, real darkness, and then the sun comes up. Okay? And so, the picture, it's a very beautiful picture, and it's telling us that to the church, before the darkest hour that's coming on the earth, Christ will come to us as the bright and morning star. He'll snatch his bride away. And then we'll go through the darkest time, and then the sun will rise. Jesus will come, and we will come with him, right? Revelation 19. Revelation 4, doors open in heaven, we go in. Revelation 19, door opens in heaven, we come out riding on horses. That's the only time I'll get on a horse. And it'll be a nice horse, a war horse, but well-behaved, right? And we will come back with the Lord Jesus to reign with him. And Israel will be anticipating that coming, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. Just another little contrast because the end of this chapter, um, it, 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 it talks about a curse. Notice the very last verse of chapter 4 uh, of Malachi. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. We'll get back to who we're talking about in a moment. Uh, of their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The last word of the Old Testament revelation is curse. The last words of the New Testament revelation is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The interesting. Who bore the curse. Right? So, so it's just amazing to see these contrasts. Beautiful contrasts between the two. Old Testament ends with a curse. New Testament ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the curse for us in Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. So, going back to our passage, uh, verse 2, Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. He's going to come and put all this sickness right, make the world new again. And, and I just love, I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked into prophecy and all the rest of it, but it is amazing how there's this massive move to save the environment. And, and I don't want to be cynical, but it's futile because... The tribulation period, you, you think global warming, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? And, and it's not going to be people driving around in Chevy Suburbans that's going to cause it. It's actually going to be the Lord who's going to cause it. And, and the, the trees, third of the trees, third of the water is going to be contaminated. I mean, this is pretty dramatic, isn't it? And that the Lord Jesus who made it in the first place He's going to come back without men's help and he's going to make it right again. He's going to come as the healer, healing in his wings. And he's going to heal a sick, broken planet. 
and make it well again. Just like he did to you, a sick individual who needed a savior, he came and brought healing to your troubled soul, didn't he? He's going to do that on a massive scale when he comes back. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? Praise. This is exciting. This is the Lord. This is who he is. He's wonderful. And that's what he's going to come. And you, uh, those that fear my name, will go forth and grope as calves of the stall. In other words, you're going to be fat and happy. And you won't have to worry about dying because, you know, it's going to be fine. And you shall tread down the wicked, but they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so his part in shot to this covenant people is remember the law of Moses my servant which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments because they've departed from it and then he says behold I'll send you Elijah the prophet now we've already had John baptizer coming in chapter 3 I'll send my messenger he'll prepare the way before me but when you sent a, a forerunner, if the forerunner was rejected, it really was an indication that the one who was coming after him would be rejected. And so John came, and what happened to him? He lost his head, didn't he? They just, he was rejected. And the religious leadership didn't listen to John, didn't submit to his baptism, refused to repent. And so it, it didn't look good for how they'd respond when the one who he was preparing the way for came. And when he came, we will not have this man to reign over us. They nailed him to a cross. But God didn't give up very easily. So he says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. And I believe in Revelation 11, and you may disagree with me, and when we get to heaven, one of us will be wrong and it could be me. But I believe that you have Moses and Elijah in Revelation chapter 11. Because of the miracles they do, because they've already been seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, that they will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so he says, I'm going to send Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And one of the things he's going to do is turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers. He's going to speak to the nation of Israel. Uh, he's going to challenge them. He's going to, just like John did, cause repentance and, and, and people to get ready uh, for the coming of the Lord. And he says, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And so that's where we end. But in a sense, we don't end. Because Malachi is followed by 400 years of silence. Now, it's not that Israel's history stopped. It didn't. In fact, there was a lot of things that happened in those 400 years between Malachi and John Baptist. Um, A lot of, we were talking with somebody about this the other night, a lot of good things happened. Alexander the Great conquered the world and spread the Greek language everywhere he went. 
And the New Testament would be written in Greek. It would be like the English of our day, the language of commerce and business. And so in those 400 years, the Lord's not stopped. He's working, preparing the world for the coming of his son. So that in the fullness of time, when Jesus came, it would be a perfect time. The Romans came and they thought they were building roads for their armies. And in a sense they were, but really they were building them on Roman government money so that the gospel could spread along the highways of the Roman Empire. Fullness of time. The, the, the Roman, uh, the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? Law and order was the big thing about Roman administration. It meant it was safe for people to travel on the highways and take the gospel. And then in that 400 years, there's, there's a growing disillusionment with this bankrupt Judaism that would become full, fully developed in the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see already here going through the motions, uh, ritual, empty externalism that would develop to a full-blown degree, preparing hearts of those that were tired and weary for an authoritative message. And, and there's so many other things we could say, but God was working all those 400 years. Sometimes when we don't hear anything from God, it doesn't mean God is not working. Sometimes he's doing a preparatory work for something big he wants to do. Okay? And, and, and then uh, Jewish history continued as well because um, the Apocrypher, you've heard of the Apocrypher, that really covers Jewish history history in those 400 years it's not inspired doesn't claim to be inspired but but it really kind of is their history after malachi there's no thus saith the lord in the apocrypha but their history continued but it's all waiting waiting for the coming of the lord and here we are and we're waiting but we're not idly waiting, right? We're actively waiting because we want to be occupied until he comes. But he's coming. Maybe we won't have the week of prayer after all. And I wouldn't mind. We'd be at a better prayer meeting. But it would be all praise. <laughs> That's for sure, wouldn't it? But maybe that won't. But the good news is that Malachi definitely has a message for us today. And, and if, if I could summarize it in one sentence, it's this. Whatever you do, do not lose the fear of the Lord. Because when the people of God lose the fear of God, it's not pretty. If Malachi teaches us anything, it shows us that. We need to walk with a consciousness of his greatness, who it is we're dealing with. I am a great God, he says, and a great king. And we can't afford to lose sight of that. And that will affect us in our daily walk, recognizing who he is and who I am, marveling at his grace, but not being overly ignorant of his greatness. Don't allow his grace to minimize his greatness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the few days we've had together to just 
kind of look at this little book that ends our Old Testament. And yet we are thankful that all these minor prophets seem to have major messages for our hearts today. And uh, we thank you for the new covenant. Oh, how we thank thee uh, for the, the cup that speaks of the blood of the Lord Jesus, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin and that you choose not to bring our sin before us anymore. Lord, when the enemy comes and tries to remind us, help us to remember that you have chosen not to remember. Lord, help us to be grateful. Lord, we just pray too for your people. Lord, help us to not lose a sense of your greatness and uh, just to bow before the one who is indeed the great king. And so we thank thee again for this time, eagerly awaiting the coming, soon coming, of our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his worthy and precious name we pray. Amen.